0: Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, part two of Professor Michael O'Rourke's five-part series, The Nows and Thens of Queer Theory. This online and in-residence seminar was organised by the Global Centre for Advanced Studies in association with UCD Centre for Gender, Culture and Identities and UCD Humanities Institute. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this podcast, part two, fuck Foucault. Welcome to those of you who are joining us today uh, online, and uh, welcome to uh, those of us who are here in the Humanities Institute in Dublin. So I'd like to thank Preston. Uh, Michael and uh, the Global Centre for Advanced Studies, but I'd also like to thank Anne Mulhall and Valerie here at the Humanities Institute of Ireland, who are partnering uh, with GCAS for this uh, five-day seminar on the nows and thens of queer theory. Okay, so today we're we're, um, talking about uh, fucking Foucault. And uh, I'm going to start with uh, some epigraphs. And uh, the first is from the preface to uh, Deleuze's essay, Desire and Pleasure, by Francis François Ewald. Okay, Gilles Deleuze and Michel Foucault became acquainted in 1962 at Clermont-Ferrand at the house of Gilles Vouillemont. Gilles Deleuze had just published his Nietzsche et la Philosophie, and Foucault was seeking to have him nominated against Roger Garodi for a position at the University of Clermont-Ferrand, where he teaches. It's the beginning of a long friendship. Deleuze invites Foucault to the colloque de Raymond dedicated to Nietzsche and which he has been given the task of organising. It is together that they take in 1966 responsibility for the French version of the new colli Montari edition of Nietzsche at Gallimard. When Deleuze publishes Difference in Repetition and Logic of Sense in 1969, Foucault reviews them in Le Nouveau Observateur and in an article in Critique where, according to a formula which will become famous, he declares, but one day perhaps... The century will be Deleuzean. Deleuze, on his side, reviews l'archaeologie de savoir, the archaeology of knowledge and critique. In the post-May 1968 period, Deleuze joins Foucault at the heart of the group information prison, the GIP. They are often seen together at the anti-judiciary demonstrations at the beginning of the 1970s. The publication of Anti-Oedipus in 1972, an extraordinary profusion of new notions and surprise concepts, shows Deleuze to be one of the great thinkers of the post-May 68 period. In the aftermath of this publication, Lark dedicates an issue to him, therein figures an important interview where two philosophers come together to define in common the new status of the intellectual, of his work and of his relationship with the struggles. Anti-Oedipus, published three years before Discipline and Punish, has no doubt been an arresting work for Foucault, who soon proposes his own version of Oedipus, La Verité et la Forme Juridique, a text on a theme that he will take up several times again. In 1977, Foucault prefaces the American edition of L'Anti-Oedipus, presenting it in the categories which will be the same as those of his last work, as an introduction to non-fascist life. Deleuze reviews Discipline and Punish in Critique, then, the dialogue is interrupted. Foucault will never see Deleuze again. One of his last wishes, when he is hospitalised in June 1984, will be to see him again. Okay, so that's my first epigraph. The next is from... That's another long way. It's from Louise Burchill's preface, another preface, uh, to Alain Badiou's book on Deleuze, which is called Deleuze, The Clamor of Being. Virchil says, it is sufficiently rare for an important philosopher to devote a book, especially one unable to be classified simply as commentary or critique, to one of his contemporaries. That when Gilles Deleuze published his text on Michel Foucault in 1986, just two years after Foucault's death, the question that incessantly returned in the reviews of the book and in the interviews with the author was that of the reason prompting the undertaking as such. Was one to understand the book as a product of a process of mourning, as the signature of the end of an epoch, or, on the contrary, as an appeal to continue the work that death had interrupted, if, not less charitably, as an appropriation by which Deleuze, speaking ostensibly of Foucault's thought, in fact promotes his own? When confronted with the question, Deleuze himself invariably echoed a constellation of forces. Out of necessity for me, out of admiration for him, out of the emotion caused by his death and by the interruption of his work was the succinct response he gave in one interview, but accentuated above all the veritable compulsion, the necessity for me, that had impelled this gesture of consecrating this text to a friend philosopher, with this expression to be understood in the sense not only that Deleuze and Foucault were linked by ties of friendship, but more centrally, that the vital relationship they shared as fellow-suffers, friends of the concept, displayed a particular compatibility such that the resonance between their respective conceptual creations can be seen to testify to a common image of thought, or in the terms of what is philosophy, to an isomorphism of the plane of imminence on which these concepts are deployed. Accordingly, Deleuze emphasised his his book Foucault as stemming from the necessity to discern the logics of Foucault's thought as a whole and to delineate thereby a portrait of Foucault's philosophy capable of capturing that which, like a wind that pushes you from behind in a series of gusts and jolts, would have forced Foucault to pass from one level of his reflection to another, propelling him along a never-pre-traced trajectory. And the last epigraph is from Foucault's essay, Friendship as a Way of Life. And he says, what the gay movement needs now is much more than a science or scientific knowledge or pseudo-scientific knowledge of what sexuality is. Sexuality is something that we, we ourselves create. It is our own creation, and much more than the discovery of a secret side of our desire. We have to understand with, that with our desires, through our desires, go new forms of relationships, new forms of love, new forms of creation. Sex is not a fatality, it's a possibility for creative life. We have to create a gay life to become. Okay, Foucault is the saint of queer studies, considered by many to be the father of the discipline, its founder avant la lettre. Sanctified and hagi- hagiographized in David Halperin's book Saint Foucault in 1995, Despite the fact that the as yet unsanctified Deleuze, but no less important to queer thought, wrote a posthumous book about his friend, a detailed study, even a queer study, of the Foucault-Deleuze assemblage, or disassemblage, has yet to be written. Deleuze himself says, I felt a need, a real need, to write this book. When someone that you like and admire dies, you sometimes need to draw their picture not to glorify them, not to remember, but rather to produce a final likeness. What we shared was bound to be rather indefinite, a sort of background that allowed me to talk with him. I still think he's the greatest thinker of our time. You can do the portrait of a thought just as you can do the portrait of a man. I've tried to do a portrait of his philosophy. So today, in this lecture, what I want to do is try to think through this Deleuze-Foucault friendship or conjunction um, and its importance for queer studies um, in a tentative way, but uh, in a more systematic way than has been attempted uh, to now. In the years following its publication, uh, Deleuze's extraordinary book on Foucault, uh, published in 1986, was met with uh, almost complete silence from Deleuzians, Foucauldians and from queer theorists. But uh, in what follows, I'm going to try and demonstrate that this is a fecundity to the assemblage between Foucault and Deleuze and that its importance uh, is continuing, not just for philosophical thought more broadly, but for the future of queer studies. Now, the deleuze guattarian uh, and there I'm referring to Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari, who he he wrote um, several books with, the Deleuze Gotarian conceptual toolbox and Foucault's theoretical practices intermesh to articulate, if not a common purpose, at least a common cause, an elaboration of what Foucault and Deleuze would both call a thought of the outside. And it was of course it was Foucault who famously said, as I mentioned in the first epigraph, that this century would become Deleuzian. So there's a great respect on both sides, but then there's this total break in their relationship. Uh, as it turns out, I won't go into this too much, uh, the reason they fell out was because Deleuze favoured the word desire and Foucault favoured the word pleasure. Uh, so the, philosophically they went their separate ways and their friendship more or less ended over this disagreement over a word. So my intention today is not to produce a Deleuzian reading of Foucault uh, or indeed a Foucauldian reading of Deleuze um, or to collapse the differences between them, um, what Deleuze calls their widely differing methods uh, and purposes. Um, So much as I want to attempt to articulate something that's in between them, um, a kind of transversal line uh, that crosses or runs from Foucault to Deleuze um, that both separates them um, and also connects them. So the line in between, this transversal line that I'm trying to trace, it, it wouldn't necessarily belong to Foucault, uh, and it wouldn't necessarily belong uh, to Deleuze. It would really be what they would call a block of becoming, uh, more, more of a, a dialogue or a conversation um, in between. Uh, and the conjunction and is very important for Deleuze, he talks about and, and, and. So, what I'm talking about is Deleuze, and, and, and. uh, uh, Foucault, and I'm I'm deliberately kind of stammering on the and there, because uh, Deleuze emphasized this kind of stuttering uh, philosophy. And I think that the advantage of reading in between them is that it allows us to articulate a a more rigorously open or rhizomatic conceptual system. Um, Do people know what a rhizome is? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, rather than a, a tree, which is sort of phallic and arboreal and upright, rhizome is shoots which uh, go up everywhere. So the advantage of this this sort of open rhizomatic reading of their conceptual systems um, is to see their thought as mobile, both Foucault's thought and as, the, as mobile and constantly changing frameworks. Um, uh, and as I said, uh, reading them in this transversal way is both to see the separation between them but also to see the connections. Uh, but you would call it a non-relation, um, which is also a relation. Uh, so it's a double becoming, uh, which is driven by an impulse to mix, connect, assemble, disassemble, reassemble, unfold the conditions of thought um, in this kind of encounter with the outside. So you might call it a sort of Deleuze-Foucault rhizome that I'm trying to construct here. Now, Deleuze's book, Foucault, uh, is a wonderful book. Uh, I hadn't looked at it for a very long time uh, until yesterday,
1: Um,
0: and I'm reminded of how it really is Deleuze's best uh, work of philosophy and the best book ever written on Foucault, in my opinion. Um, So Deleuze's Foucault amounts simply to the most provocative and profound encounter with Foucault's thought yet available. Although David Halperin, um, who um, wrote the book uh, St. Foucault, which is the most important queer studies text on Foucault, says that um, Deleuze's book on Fou- Foucault says in so much kind of jargon, what Foucault said much more clearly himself. So there will be a lot of sort of Deleuzian jargon, but I, I hope to make it a little bit more accessible. Um, so Deleuze's Foucault book, it's not simply or purely a theoretical reflection on Foucault, um, and nor is it an exposition of his philosophy. He calls it a portrait, as we saw, uh, as, m- as much as it's a kind of a map of a common rhizome that's between them. Um, and the rhizome fun- functions as precisely as I've said this example of an open system of concepts. Foucault would call it an open game, Um, And Deleuze would call it smooth space. Um, Deleuze and Guattari make the distinction between smooth space and striated space. Now, as a device for uprooting and strangling the infamous Cartesian image of the arboreal, heteronormative, philogocentric philosophy, rhizomes form heterogeneous stems, flows, and lines that are connectable in all of their parts across multiple registers, dimensions, and magnitudes. (coughs) Continually increasing in, in number through inherent connection, variation, and combination. Now, I'm not going to go in very great detail today um, into how I see queer theory itself as being like a rhizome. But if you want to, I've written, if you want to read more about that, I've written a, an essay called T.W.O., Theory Without Organs, in which I do I do, do that you can find that online. So rhizome networks are plenitudinal. Rhizomes produce or make the multiple in a consistent space filled with bundles of lines in contact with an outside. And these lines are constantly encountering points of stasis, arrest, blockage, segmentation, organisation and signification. Uh, That would be when a rhizome hits striated space and gets blocked. But then that forces the rhizome to change in direction, to invent, and to then fold back onto what Deleuze calls a line of flight, which is where it can then can connect up with another multiplicity, and then head off in another direction. In Foucault's rhizomatic thought, these points are always on the way towards lines of rupture, and lines of crisis, as a condition for their continuous variation. And these lines come first, the first lines on the map, First lines issued from the outside, uh, and that's what sweeps them along. Curiously, um, Deleuze and Guattari register a difference by aligning phenomena of resistance with counterattack in an apparatus rather than the creation of lines of flight of and from the outside. And that it's, this is not carried through to Deleuze's Foucault book, uh, which in fact thinks resistance as a vital force of creative life and thought as the primary line of the outside. So, in response to Aidan's question from yesterday, Deleuze really emphasises this creative resistance in his Foucault book, and I'm going to, for you, I'm going to focus a lot on that today. Um, As Foucault himself says, resistance comes first, and resistance remains superior to the forces of the process. Power relations are obliged obliged to change with the resistance. So I think resistance... And he italicised it. I think resistance is the main word, the key word, in this dynamic. So contrary to this reading of Foucault as being all about uh, capillaries of power, this is about resistance as a creative line of force, this rhizomic potential in resistance. To say that Toulouse and Foucault share a rhizome is to say that their work forms an indefinite and reversible series of imminent maps with multiple exits and entries, the revolving doors in between. Uh, it's a sort of stealing, or a double or creative theft from each other's toolboxes to a point where their differences resolve into a zone of indiscernibility, which is proper to becoming. And this is something I steal from Guattari, where he calls, in softs of Breast, he says, uh, we need to be idea thieves, so we steal an idea from another philosopher and we see what we can do with it. And the idea of the toolbox comes from an interview that Deleuze and Foucault did together on intellectuals and power And they talk about taking philosophy up as a toolbox and you pick up something. You see if a concept works for you. If it doesn't, you drop it and you pick up another concept from the toolbox. So the relationship of uh, Deleuze and Foucault's thought has nothing to do with mimicry or discipleship or imitation or representation or resemblance. It's only an exploding of two heterogeneous theories on a line of flight that would be composed by this common rhizome between them. So the Deleuze-Foucault assemblage functions as something like what Deleuze calls an A-parallel evolution. The interlinking and relay of intensities through a continuous coupling and doubling, pushing the deterritorialisation even further into an ever-renewed encounter with the outside. So forming a rhizome in between Foucault and Deleuze enables, enables us to see Foucault's work as a complex, open system a machine that builds up in advance and produces a space of thought, a thought of the outside. And this work of thought does not have the classical unities of beginning, middle and end, but continually starts up again in the middle, or au milieu, as as the and Guattari say in A Thousand Plateaus. Everything begins in the middle and goes off in new and unforeseen directions, making relays and connections elsewhere. So again I'm, I'm emphasising as I did with Butler's thought this sort of non uh not this sort of linear beginning, middle, end um, but always beginning in the middle. Foucault's thought always operates in between and from the middle of the networks of knowledge, power and self. It's kaleidoscopic, rotating through disciplines just as the logic of its development is seismic moving, as Deleuze says, like a volcanic chain with its points of crisis and abrupt shifts rather than a stable system close to equilibrium. So I would read queer theory very much in this sort of Deleuzean reading of Foucault as something kaleidoscopic which moves or or rotates through different disciplines uh, and creates these sort of seismic shifts and ruptures. Um, Queer theory itself is not a stable system. It doesn't have any sort of centre of gravity or it doesn't have any equilibrium, it's constantly mobile constantly shifting, uh, constantly on the move, always starting up in the middle and then veering off in new and unforeseen directions and I guess that's one of the things I'll, I hope to mean when I talk about veer theory tomorrow in other words we can read the logic of Foucault's thought and queer thinking not on the model of the organism which has a sort of progressivist or unilinear conception of development. Um, but we might say that it functions instead as a body without organs, uh, which is a machine coupled to other machines. Uh, it's a tendency or a potential or a becoming. Uh, so there are certain attractors of knowledge, power, power and the self which allow us to play with its lines, drifts, bifurcations and experimenting with what a particular apparatus can do. Deleuze and Clary often use this idea of plugging in. Uh, so that's what I would see queer theory is doing. is it, it, It's a kind of plugging in uh, to other uh, apparatuses of knowledge. Bodies without organ function throughout the Foucault and Deleuze assemblage in opposition to that organisation of the so-called organism The operating principle of the body without organs is the tendency to reduce, reject and escape the organisation of the organs in favour of an increase and acceleration in the production of differential potential. The body without organs is the non-productive potentiality of thought, matter, continually reinserted into processes of production, an organless body without image traversed by bands, gradients and zones of intensity with their varying degrees of attraction and repulsion. So if you see theory as a kind of uh, organism, a stable organism, uh, then queer theory is this body without organs. It doesn't produce in the same way. Um, it would be more if we, if we look at a sort of non, non-orgasmic thought. So it, it doesn't have a teleology, uh, as I was saying yesterday. It doesn't have a telos or an end point. <coughs> So there are zones of intensity as much on the body as there are zones of intensity in theory. So there are many bodies without organs scattered across Foucault's work and the problem is how they might reach or fold with the imminent space of Deleuze and Guattari's plane of consistency. (coughs) There are all kinds of mixes, captures, interrelations and blockages to sort out and it's precisely a question of unblocking to the greatest degree possible the movement of passage and connection of each body without organ to its outside, enabling the other to burst forth in the present. This process functions in Foucault through crisis, rupture, break, disarticulation, experimentation and constant displacement, or what Deleuze would call nomadism. Foucault describes this dismantling process of his work in the following way. I dream of the intellectual destroyer of evidence and universalities, the one who, in the inertias and constraints of the present, locates and marks the weak points, the openings, the lines of force, who incessantly displaces himself, doesn't know exactly where he is heading, nor what he'll think tomorrow, because he is too attentive to the present. We can take Foucault's dream of, a conti- of continuous lines of variation for theoretical practice as a strategy for dismantling the inertias and constraints of strata or the inertias and constraints of this theory as organism and connecting up to openings, lines of force to the outside. So Foucault essentially dreams of what Deleuze calls a war machine for thought. So this very nomadic way of thinking always on the move. Foucault's thought, uh, his life and work may be grasped as the assemblage of a war machine to the extent to which it resists invoking a universal subject uh, or a totality of being um, by affirming this kind of nomadic dispersion of subjectivation in a smooth space of thought uh, or creating these lines of flight to the outside. So rather than the attribute of a subject and the representation of a whole, Foucault's thought is the double becoming of life and work. So there's this kind of articulation in Foucault of his life and his work, which you see much more uh, in the later period of Foucault in in, in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, up until his death in 84. In these conditions, life ceases to be anything personal. Being oneself no longer makes sense and the work can no longer be considered textual. He says, I would like my books to be sort of scalpels, molotov cocktails or minefields. So that makes sense of what I was saying about like, theory is a body without organs. or Theory is a body which refuses to be organised uh, in that sort of progressivist way, in the same way that Foucault refuses uh, the body uh, to be organised. it's It's just zones of, it's traversed by zones of intensity. When Foucault says, writing only interests me insofar as it can be incorporated into the reality of combat, and when he calls himself a manufacturer of arms, life and work detonate as the singular expression of a war machine, thought should be thrown like a stone from a war machine. As exteriorities of thought, war machines are composed through a direct relation with the forces of the outside, as opposed to the forms of interiority of state philosophy. They function through nomadic distribution in open space rather than sedentary ordering through the fixed and regulated points of a closed architecture. Thus the aim of the war machine for thought is not war, but the composition and occupation of smooth space, it is this combination of war machine and smooth space that opens up problems, that approaches politics from behind and cuts across societies on the diagonal. And Deleuze and Guattari call this micropolitics. <coughs> this idea of politics from behind, uh, uh, I already mentioned in the quote at the top from Francois Ewald the idea of ghosts coming from behind in this relationship between Foucault and Deleuze. It relates to uh, Deleuze saying that when one does a sort of reading of another philosopher in the sort of traditional history of philosophy way in which one philosopher writes about another, Deleuze says that you must bugger them. You must fuck the other philosopher from behind. But it's sort of a fecund process because you give him a child. Okay? So it's it's heteronormative in a sense because you bugger another philosopher which is non-heteronormative but then you uh, produce a child but uh, the key part is that he says the child would not be recognizable as, their, as his own or her own. So the smooth and the striated uh, forms the penultimate plateau of a thousand plateaus uh, by Deleuze and Guattari um, and it's activated across various models. Smooth space is heterogeneous rather than homogenous Uh, constructing concepts that are open, connectable, juxtaposable in all of their parts. But they're also capable of being detached and then reassembled uh, like this kind of amorphous patchwork. So the smooth space is made up of lines of continuous variation that are directional and vectoral rather than dimensional and metric. Uh, Smooth space is transversal. It cuts like a diagonal across the horizontal and the vertical planes of stratification rather than organising a relation between fixed and variable elements in a domain of structures or possible unities. Finally, smooth space is concerned with an abstract line opposed to abstract in the ordinary sense, a line that describes no contour and delimits no form. It is, in a sense, the line that keeps Foucault's thought alive. When Foucault talks of the very life of philosophy and its living substance, we can understand the deployment of a vital force specific to abstraction that draws a smooth space, unblocking the limits of organic movement. It is always in between or from the middle that the smooth space of Foucault's thought um, gathers together its fundamental shape. It moves more through continuous folding and involution at critical points, rather than any linear evolution from segment to segment, or a distribution in an open space rather than an allocation in a closed medium. So Foucault is very much a smooth thought. It is true the practical relations of knowledge... The strategic relations of power and the techniques of the relation to self, that the idea or problem of space-time relations with all their little moving lines of mutation and passages to the outside are insistently enveloped and displaced in the question of thought. So if Foucault gives a certain privilege to space, uh, a privilege that Deleuze arguably gives to time... Uh, it's not really to spatialise time, but to show that their relation, time-space, is an ever-changing non-relation. It's a series of indefinite and reversible relations organised and conditioned by what they call the virtual, yet the real difference of thought that compels them. And the virtual in uh, Deleuze and Foucault it, it's not opposed to the real. The virtual is no less real than that which is actual or actualised. So if space-time is dominant in the actuality of the present, it is because our experience of the world is less that of a long life developing through time than that of a network that connects points and intersects with it its own scheme. Our spatial experience of today condenses the past into multiply discontinuous times that, confront it with a future that comes from outside, exchange it and recreate it. It's a question of the ways in which the history of the present, the relation between history and the actual, the relation between the not yet and the no longer, appears as a distributive operation for a becoming, in between, a virtual potential folded in between the threads of our skein, and actualized through lines of variation, deviance, mutation, and divergence. So I'm, he- I'm reading here Foucault's essay of other spaces where he's talking about heterotopic spaces. And, and the potentiality of heterotopias uh, which are a potential for a thinking otherwise actualised as a space of unpredictability uh, which would open up new thoughts uh, and also open up new mixtures. Uh, it's, Deleuze would call it a mode of the virtual whereas Foucault would call it uh, the archive. Uh, and for Foucault, the archive um, converges with and is contemporaneous with the uh, contemporaneous to the present, or what he says, its threshold of existence is established by the break that separates us from what we can no longer say. But at the same time, or simultaneously, it diagrams a future of which we can barely, or not yet, speak. So the archive constitutes lines of differentiation. They're actualized in the dispersion that we are and that we make an actualisation that's not given or anticipated, enabling us to sketch out in advance the face that we will have in the future. But rather it's an actualisation that doubles the archive with a diagram of what we are not yet. So Deleuze's virtual and Foucault's archive, they they designate a kind of plenitude of the possible, or what we called yesterday the impossible. So it's not a possible to be realised, but uh, the plenitude of a virtual multiplicity, uh, or a becoming, which is actualized in the invention and creation of the undefined work of freedom. So again, they're sort of moved by this passion of the impossible that I said also uh, motivates Butler's philosophy. The experimental line of actuality diagnoses our present as that which we are ceasing to be in becoming what we are not yet. And this this is the line that escapes capital H, history, or rather it is the line that uses history for the sake of something outside and beyond, outside and beyond history in order to experiment with it and invent new forms of life and invent new forms of thought, um, not separate from what they can do by nature, essence or foundation. So it's a line of thinking otherwise that causes the other and the outside to burst forth. That which we are no longer and that which we are not yet Uh, the virtual um, virtual future past they insist or they subsist in the actualization of the present as the fold of the line outside outside into the line of fragility of today, releasing the hold of the past onto the present in in favour, Foucault says, I hope of a time to come so the present again always opens out onto this unanticipatable future which could go by the name of that to, to come or the impossible. So, in effect, this strategy of thinking otherwise opens up the possibility of reading the Foucault to Deleuze assemblage of thought as a practice of freedom across an Im- imminent plane of thought, a freedom of and from the outside. Paul Beauvais sees Deleuze's Foucault book as a treatment of Foucault in a style and problematic that are not his own. He detects in Deleuze a desire to attribute to Foucault a certain transcendence of vision, a prophetic and utopian capacity to see what has not been seen before, creating what Beauvais calls a metaphysically privileged subject of Foucault. What Beauvais sees as the necessity of something in Foucault that Deleuze's own project requires that he transform, I would see rather as a transversal line that folds from Foucault to Deleuze as a common cause and a singular becoming. So this wouldn't be a vision able to see the future, uh, as Beauvais, Beauvais is saying, but it's an art of seeing becoming, which would lie outside of time, or, or rather of seeing the time which is au milieu, the time in the middle, the time in between. Uh, and Deleuze and Guattari would call this the infinite now, um, and both Foucault and Deleuze would call this a fold of the outside in the present. Deleuze's Foucault doubles the sense and force of Foucault's thought through a direct awareness of such intense, mu- intensive multiplicity, an event without name or concept, but rather a becoming effect. Uh, so Deleuze sees Foucault as something which doesn't yet have a name, so he's, his reading of Foucault is essentially a Foucault to come. Ultimately, Deleuze's book keeps Foucault's thought alive by shooting it like an arrow into the heart of the present, but in order to reach the untimely. And Deleuze would give this style the name love, while Foucault would call it passion. So perhaps we should imagine Deleuze, as I mentioned earlier, behind Foucault, uh, eh, or even Foucault behind Deleuze. Uh, so see this image of this becoming in between them as uh, some kind of fuck or uh, a fistfuck. And this will become apparent. Now, David Halperin writes in St. Foucault that the creative and transformative potential of queer sex is especially clear in the case of fist-fucking, the practice that Foucault singles out for mention and that he seems to have in mind when he speaks of producing pleasure with very odd things, very strange parts of our bodies. Fisting, as Slavoj Žižek and Halprin point out, is a sexual practice that differs in several important respects from sexual intercourse, as the latter is conventionally defined. Uh, It's less end-driven, it's not a teleological action uh, aimed at achieving some sort of release uh, of sexual tension through orgasm. Um, So, in many ways, fisting, uh, vaginal or anal, uh, or indeed oral fisting, it doesn't fit with the Freudian model of full genitalized uh, heterosexual uh, sex um, it doesn't actually fit with a model of genitality as such either so it's a, rather than a sort of teleological process fisting is a gradual uh, or lengthy process or, or indeed an, an art is what Gail Rubin describes it as uh, an art that involves seducing one of the jumpiest and tightest muscles in the body. Halperin goes on to say, Intensity and duration of feeling, not climax, are the key values. The process can sometimes go on for hours, and it is possible that neither partner may come, or in the case of men, even maintain an erection for very long. It is also possible for the receptive male partner to come without being in a state of erection at the time. Hence, fist-fucking has been spoken of by its practitioners, not as sex, but as a kind of anal yoga, the kind of singing with your anus, and experimentation that Deleuze and Guattari talk about when they say how to make yourself into a body without organs is to sing with your anus. Uh, So perhaps they mean something like fist-fucking there. So fist-fucking represents a practical refutation of what Foucault considered the mistaken idea that bodily pleasure should always come from sexual pleasure, and the idea that sexual pleasure is the root of all our possible pleasure. In A Thousand Plateaus, Deleuze and Guattari claim that we need to go further. We haven't found our body without organs yet. We haven't sufficiently dismantled ourselves. Substitute experimentation for interpretation. Find your body without organs. Find out how to make it. In an almost contemporaneous interview in 1977, entitled Down with the Dictatorship of Sex, Foucault announced that I am for the decentralisation, the regionalisation of all pleasures. So, when he's talking about decentralization, he means a moving away from uh, the compartmentalization of the body into erogenous or genitalized zones where only some are conferred with erotic plenitude or potential. Uh, in Fistfucking, Foucault invented and experimented with his body without organs, contributing to the redefinition of both the meaning and practice of sex. Halperin asserts that the notion of desexualization is a key one for Foucault. It is often rendered degenitalization, and what he means by the desexualization of pleasure in sadomasochism is not that sadomasochism detaches pleasure from all acts of a conceivably sexual nature, but that sadomasochism detaches sexual pleasure from genital specificity, from localization in or dependence on the genitals. So it's obvious because a hand doesn't have a gender and an anus doesn't have a gender. Um, so this, this is why there's a, a degenitalization or a despecification going on um, in fist fucking. Halprin writes that sadomasochism, along with various related, though often quite distinct, practices of bondage, shaving, tit torture, cock-and-ball torture, piercing, humiliation, flagellation, and fist-fucking, produces intense pleasures while bypassing, to a greater or lesser extent, the genitals themselves. It involves the eroticisation of non-genital regions of the body, such as the nipples, the anus, the skin, and the entire surface of the body. Halperin describes this de body without organs as finding other erotic uses for the genitals than that of stimulation to the point of orgasm. Sadomasochism therefore represents a remapping of the body's erotic sites, a redistribution of its so-called erogenous zones, a breakup of the erotic monopoly traditionally held by the genitals, and even a re-eroticisation of the male genitals as sites of vulnerability. Foucault says... In the History of Sexuality, Volume 1, that the rallying point for the counterattack against the deployment of sexuality ought not to be sex desire but bodies and pleasures. This is the famous line at the end of Volume 1 of the History of Sexuality that the rallying point against the deployment of sexuality should be bodies and pleasures. A sexuality without sex, for Foucault, has the power to dismantle the agency of sex and to reverse the mechanisms of sexuality in order to advance the claims of bodies, pleasures, and knowledges in their multiplicity and their possibility of resistance. And Foucault makes a demonstrable shift away from desire. And this is where he breaks with Foucault. He makes a demonstrable shift away from desire to the de- uh, Breaks with Toulouse. He shifted away from desire to the pursuit of desubjectivating experiences of sexuality as a form of resistance against current regimes of sexuality and subjectivity. Now his reason for opposing desire as a category, as a category of knowledge about sexuality, was made clear in an interview he gave in nineteen seventy eight. He warned against the use of desire as a grid of intelligibility, a calibration in terms of normality. Tell me what your desire is, and I will tell you who you are, whether you are normal or not, and then I can qualify or disqualify your desire. He also would have uh, been against the notion of desire because for Foucault, uh, desire is too bound up with lack, whereas pleasure doesn't necessarily have that connotation. Um, The naturalisation of desire, according to Foucault, constitutes its danger, or its very susceptibility to pathologisation. In addition, uh, desire is the site of unitary notions of identity and the self, and hence of their regulation. So bodies and pleasures and the passion which animates them are lines of resistance triggered from rallying points of deterritorialisation in agencement of power desire, cutting edges that spread through the formations of Power. Bodies and pleasures constitute counter-strategies of flight or matrices of transformation across the social field. Bodies and pleasures do not lie outside the social field, nor do they emerge from it. They're a direct composition of the outside and emergence of the outside. They constitute its rhizome and they compose its cartography. Bodies and pleasures are at once the assembly of the body without organs of sex desire and the differential intensities and forces that come to pass on it or that circulate through it. Foucault's bodies and pleasures are not internal to and affections of subjects or persons, and neither do they allow, do they allow persons to find themselves. Quite the contrary, for Foucault, this rallying counter-attack of bodies and pleasures is, is essentially to lose the self, to lose the subject. Rather, they constitute an art of not being oneself, by making a body upon which intense pleasures pass through the impersonal singularities of passion. Inventing your, or experimenting with your body without organs. Bodies and pleasures converge with the body without organs. They do not interrupt the positivity of desire, but assemble with it a complex agencement by actualizing micro-elements of what Foucault has called a continuously variable diagram of power Bodies and pleasures are part of the diagram understood as an imminent cause coextensive with the whole social field. A relation of imminent forces that are no longer or not yet fully integrated into the dispositive or formation of power constituted by the stabilising and stratifying mechanisms of the diagram. They are relatively free or unbound points, points of creativity, points of change and points of resistance. Bodies and pleasures are in direct communication with those unstable diagrammatic states of force inclined towards the outside, redrawing their cartography through an emission of singularities and superimposing new creative maps of becoming. Bodies and pleasures constitute for Foucault something like a potentiality at the limit of the diagram containing them, a vital potential expressed um, as a power of resistance which would be prior to insertion into relations of power. So bodies and pleasures are precisely this resistance to power knowledge regimes. As Foucault says, the existence of power relations depends on the multiplicity of points of resistance, and this dependence exists alongside the, the aleatory, the risky, the chancy, or um, the unanticipatable but variously codifying points of resistance. Adjacent to bodies and pleasures are two the bodies and pleasures which are inscribed by capital H History, there lies another body with its pleasures, and that's a virtual body. Uh, It's a body not given, but upon which the inscribed body depends. This body without organs, this this virtual body, is volatile. Uh, It's a mutant body. Uh, It's a a turbulent body of resistant forces. Um, Deleuze would call it the multiple being of force. So it's not understood as uh, endogenous to relations of power, uh, but rather as an emergent hive, uh, continually in the process of producing itself in what Foucault calls a swarm of points, uh, points not or focuses, um, and these are pre-individual. This is before the insertion into power. So it's what Deleuze would call a larval subject. Uh, it's a it's a pre-individual subject. Uh, or a singularity. Uh, And this it's not outside of the social field, but rather traverses it. It's in the integration or stratification of this swarming of resistant forces that doubtless uh, Foucault sees revolution as being possible. Foucault says, by inflaming certain points of the body, certain moments of life, certain types of behaviour, the forces of resistance create bodies and pleasures that shift about Fracturing unities and affecting regroupings, furrowing across individuals themselves, cutting them up and remoulding them, marking off irreducible regions in them, in their bodies and minds. Foucault says that he should have opposed our science of excess, our science of sex, to a contrasting practice in our culture. That's contrasting practices of the self do exist in our culture and can be made to function as a counterattack against sex desire amounting to what Foucault calls an ethics of pleasure or an intensification of pleasure is an effect of drawing on the plane necessary for sustaining their equalisation or for constituting new assemblages of bodies and pleasures as an art of not being oneself. And these assemblages mobilise passions and pleasures, through differing orders and practices. And above all, these practices engage what Foucault calls limit experiences, a tearing of the self from itself in such a way that it's no longer a subject as such or that it is completely other than itself, so that it may arrive at its own dissolution or annihilation or dissociation. For Foucault in his book Remarks on Marx, it is a question of vital lived experience an experience that produces something that doesn't yet exist and about which we cannot know how or what it will be. It is a question of the destruction of what we are, of the creation of something entirely different, of a total innovation. This experimentation on oneself through process of individuation radically calls the subject into question. And he says, to call the subject into question had to mean to live it in an experience that might be its real destruction or dissociation, its explosion or upheaval into something radically other. So you can see how life and work are uh, bound up together there, because for Foucault, thinking is a uh, throwing a Molotov cocktail, uh, and also the body, or this act of depersonalization of losing oneself, is destructive and explosion. In sadomasochism, Foucault lived an impersonal and anonymous experience of the self that might have been its real destruction or dissociation, experimenting with the techniques of not being himself through the intense pleasure or pain outside of sex desire, a counterattack against sex desire through body pleasure assemblages. So for him, sadomasochism was this limit experience or an ethics of pleasure. An intensification of pleasure, which would constitute this new assemblage, this invention of something new, uh, this invention of bodies and pleasures which are not reducible to the self but would actually constitute an art of not being oneself. A limited experience that he says enables the creation of something entirely different, a radical innovation. Stadomasochism so makes an unavoidable challenge of the question what can we make work? What new game can we invent? The sadomasochism game has nothing to do with the disclosure or the uncovering of tendencies deep within the unconscious, but rather the constitution of a body without organs upon which intense pleasures are constructed. This is Foucault. The idea that sadomasochism is related to deep violence, that sadomasochistic practice is a way of liberating that violence, this aggression is stupid. We know very well that what, what all these people are doing is not aggressive, They're inventing new possibilities of pleasure with strange parts of their body through the eroticisation of the body. I think it's a kind of creation, a creative enterprise, which has as one of its main features what I call the desexualisation of pleasure. The possibility of using our bodies as a possible source of very numerous pleasures is something that is important. So we can see there that for Foucault, the masochistic practice is a creative experimentation with the zones of the body that displaces this kind of hierarchy or localization and distribution of pleasure from this apparatus of sex desire. So it frees us from that apparatus. So it's at once a regulated but also open game of strategic relations that are fluid, indefinite, uh, but also reversible, And this eroticisation of power sources a pleasure pain that is in a constant state of invention, response, test and renegotiation. Foucault stresses the innovations that these practices imply, the real creation of new possibilities of pleasure through the intensive use of strategic relationships. If, in social power, the relation of forces tends to become inflexible, hidden and stabilised in institutions and codes, in sadomasochism, power is rendered visible as a function of constantly changing strategic relations or relationships, corresponding to what Foucault, in Volume 1 of the History of Sexuality, refers to as the perpetual spirals of power and pleasure. This relation of strategies rather than the reproduction within the erotic relationship of the structures of power is what he calls the acting out of power structures by a strategic game that is able to give sexual pleasure or bodily pleasure. And this acting out does not cancel out power or pleasure or turn them back against each other, rather they seek out overlap and reinforce one another. For Foucault, State is the invention of a strategic or counter-strategic assemblage that conducts power through pleasure or at any rate enables their fusion through the formation of a circuit where power, pleasure and pain are spliced together through a conversion of forces. So this pleasure, pleasure power gets hyphenated in a certain way. and um, This pleasure power is detached from the agency of sex, uh, or detached from uh, the orga- orgasmic. Foucault's body without organs is the body without orgasm, in a sense. Edmund White refers to one French savant's observation that fist-fucking is our century's only brand-new contribution to the sexual armamentarianism. Foucault's power pleasure is scrambled across the body, simultaneously furrowing out its organicity and multiplying the points or receptors of sensation across its surfaces. For Foucault, it's a question of multiplying and burgeoning of the body and exaltation, in some ways autonomous, of the least possibilities of a body fragment. So this idea of a uh, new sexual armamentarium that Edmund White is talking about, the invention of fist-fucking, uh, it's hardly an invention of the 20, 20th century. But uh, this is what White says. But uh, the practices of sadomasochism constitute this kind of armamentarium or a techne. It's an art or a skill. And it, but it pressures the body beyond, beyond certain thresholds or... Uh, beyond certain gradients, and it makes passages for pleasure which sprout, as Foucault says, from strange parts of the body. This technology of the self will be part of a broader project of self-fashioning, or what Foucault calls ascesis, uh, a care of the self, uh, a philosophical ethos or a way of life uh, based on a renewed asceticism, uh, creating oneself as a work of art, or an exercise of oneself in the activity of thought. Which is an art of depersonalization or becoming imperceptible or desubjectification in what Foucault called his laboratories of sexual experimentation. The eroticism of sadomasochism then is a process of invention and is to be aligned with a thought practice of becoming. In this construction of a disorganized, Say the masochistic body. Suffering is not the detour or route to pleasure, but an experimental program in the use of suffering pleasure. Again, there will be hyphenated. Uh, just as power pleasure is hyphenated, suffering pleasure is hyphenated. Um, that suffering pleasure becomes used or as a strategy or counter strategy which would constitute or become a way of constituting a body without organs and bringing forward this idea of the plane of consistency, a circuit of connection and communication which will be in between bodies as an art for living with the uh, the aleatory or fugitive forces of the outside. For Foucault, the is an anonymous and impersonal process that consists in continually creating and increasing the number of connections in a circuit that is both open and regulated. It therefore has affinities with the deleuze plane of consistency, which is variously drawn out as a body without organs or simply desire. The plane of consistency is constantly extricating itself from the plane of organisation in processes of smoothing lines and movements, speeds and slownesses, particles and affects, escaping through continuums of intensity in zones of proximity. Foucault says, we must invent with the body we must invent with the body, with its elements, surfaces, volumes and thicknesses, a non-disciplinary eroticism, that of the body in a volatile and diffused state, with its chance encounters and unplanned pleasures. And he cites the, the sadomasic subculture in which he was immersed in San Francisco as a kind of example of this collective body without organs uh, that had created this sort of provisional Aleatory, non-disciplinary eroticism through the use of pleasure. And this SM scene offered Foucault the opportunity to experiment with chance encounters and unplanned pleasures, opening new ways or styles of existing, new styles of living, which wouldn't be const- constituted or conditioned by identity, um, or an, an identity to be uncovered in some way or discovered, but rather through modes of individuation, which were always to be invented, uh, in relationships of differentiation, creation, and innovation. So the sadomasochistic subculture offers offered co opportunities to practice an art of not being oneself, to lose your face, to become imperceptible, to become this idea of a, a, a larval or pre-individuated subject where that which is not one assembles, assembles itself as nothing but a body with, with which combinations and productions of pleasure are possible. Uh, so you, you uh, as Foucault says, you cease to be imprisoned in your face, uh, in your past, uh, in your identity. Miko Tukinen uh, in an essay on Foucault and Deleuze, asks, how does one reject the habitual action and common sense that, as effects of subjection may be, Crucial to one's very emergence and survival as a subject. How is it possible to pry open the lines of force that have rigidified into recognizable structures of existence through the habits of the self, of living? How much and what forms of one's continued existence as a subject can one hazard in risking the unpredictability of becoming? In addressing these questions, Foucault in his ethics texts and his late interviews locates in gay sexuality and lifestyle of the early 1980s forms of ascesis or self-invention, of open-ended and inevitably dangerous relations to the self that demand of us new modes of connectedness to the world. Crucial for Foucault is the formless, unforeseeable character of this connectedness. The subject must invent not discover new relations to oneself and to others through what he calls rapport à soi, a constantly modified care of the self. Homosexual lifestyle through which um, he gives examples of friendship but also of sadomasochism. The homosexual lifestyle is what pr- provides Foucault with a space for, for such new relatedness. But when he talks about this invention of new styles or new modes or new new relationalities. Uh, while his example is friendship and, say, the masochism, uh, but homosexual lifestyle in particular, we can still extrapolate modes of living uh, from that which are de desexualised, depersonified, uh, impersonal, which wouldn't necessarily just be homosexual. Above all, one must resist turning this becoming homosexual into a programme with clearly articulated goals, Foucault says you, you can't turn this idea of becoming impersonal into a program. He says as soon as a program is presented it becomes a law and there's a prohibition against inventing. There ought to be an inventiveness special to a situation like ours. The program must be wide open. Foucault repeatedly insisted in his later interviews and essays on the ethics on... Um, his essays on ethics on the importance of allowing the emergence of the future as an unforeseeable and possibly monstrous becoming through something he calls and I think this is important affective and relational virtualities a politics that elicits the emergence of the virtual is incompatible with programs whose outcomes can be articulated in advance before their actualization. once our political practices solidify into predictions and plans, the virtual is preempted into the existing modes of being This rejection of mappable struggles explains the radical break between the first and the latter two volumes of The History of Sexuality. In a 1984 interview, Foucault notes that he did embark on the proposed six volumes of The History of Sexuality, which would trace the genealogy of several concepts in The History of Sexuality, but he abandoned them because he almost died of boredom writing those books. What was missing from the venture, according to Foucault, was a sense of risk, the risk of failure, of not knowing if one would complete the project. Importantly, it is to these dangerous texts, widely misinterpreted and even more widely ignored, that Leo Bersani turns in his efforts to initiate what he calls our most urgent project now, which is redefining modes of relationality and community, the very notion of sociality. And Bersani emphasizes this unforeseeability and the emergence of the new in the service of describing a better future for intimacy. This project begins with Foucault's 1981 interview in the French magazine Gay PA, Friendship as a Way of Life, where he defined homosexuality as more than a sexual relation between people of the same sex. Importantly, it pointed the way to what he described as the formation of new alliances and the tying together of as yet unforeseen kinds of relationships that would unseal the constricted range of bodies, pleasures and forms of intimacy. Foucault suggests that what troubles heterosexuals about homosexuality is not the sex at all, but instead the emergent possibility of these alternative kinds of relationships that challenge the current range of intimacies from friendship to sexual relations. So he says, what bothers heterosexuals is not so much the idea of two men fucking, but that in the morning they might hold hands. Foucault's account of unforeseen kinds of relationships has for queer theorists been a springboard for celebrating the possibilities of non-heteronormative forms of sex and love. Alternative models of sexuality, what Foucault calls new alliances, emphasise this new, promising, smooth, as yet untold and necessarily untellable future physical and emotional pleasures. Though David Bell and John Binney write that new models of friendship therefore hold the promise of new models of democracy, and that new models of relationship and a new culture of intimacy can precipitate new patterns of kinship that may or may not lead to relationships that become rhizomatic. This ties in what I was saying yesterday. So if we invent these new modes of alliance, as Foucault talked about, we can invent new modes of both democracy and also new modes of kinship. In their essay, Sex in Public, Lauren Berlant and Michael Warner conclude with an account of erotic vomiting in a bar And for them, originality is the key to this performance's success. They say the performers intended non-heteronormative worlds because they refused to pretend that privacy was their ground, because there were forms of sociability that unlinked money and family from the scene of the good life, because they made sex the consequence of public mediations and collective self-activity in a way that made for unpredicted pleasures. Tim Dean, reading Freud's Theory of Pleasure and Desire, at the level of the drive, maintains that sex does not, have, does not have to take place with another whole object. Dean writes, by pointing to one extreme outcome of the discontinuity between the sexual incident and the sexual object, Freud reminds us that originally the object of desire is not another person, much less a member of the opposite sex, but something rather more abject. Thinking of sexual object choice in terms of persons entails a kind of sublimation, and idealising consolidation of the object ultimately Dean argues for what he terms an, an impersonalist conception of sexuality and in particular he's talking about the, the, the subculture of barebacking um, among uh, primarily gay male men where you have uh, a culture of gift giving which is people who uh, give the virus the HIV virus to those who are uh, bug chasers those who wish to be uh, infected with the virus uh, but barebacking is, is just as so prevalent in heterosexual cultures as well. Uh, but, so there's this uh, impersonalist conception of sexuality, meaning that sex and fancy involve an object that's not a person uh, necessarily, but it's also prior to gender, because the human infant, Dean says, relates to its original object, the mother, not as a person but as an object And he elaborates on that by saying that while arguments extolling the democratic utopianism of queer public sex totally mystify what actually goes on in sex clubs and outdoor venues where men gather for sex, nevertheless the sexual activity in these places has the virtue of emphasising connections with body parts rather than persons. Gay public sex is often thoroughly impersonal in a way that throws into relief how relationality involves other persons only contingently. This would refer to any public sex. But again, Dean's example is gay public sex, in the same way that Foucault's was homosexual lifestyles. Okay, concluding. Which brings me uh, back to Deleuze and Foucault. To to negotiate an openness to the future, to allow for the emergence of the radically new, one must move beyond the forms of disciplinary subjectivity which would predetermine one's relationships to the outside. So to to gloss this new form of relatedness and the ethical imperatives to readjust or reorient... Our extensions. We may do well to trace the suggestive links between Foucault and Deleuze. So, obviously, I'm not arguing for a kind of complete agreement between them. Uh, There are no strict or direct correspondences in their work. But uh, what this comparison or this assemblage I've been been building does suggest is, or amount to, is more a project of uh, recognizability of our foreseeability that both of them would criticise. So there's as much a Deleuze to come as there's a Foucault to come. Uh, So more accurately, one could say there's a sort of resonance or an intensity between uh, Deleuze and Foucault, and Deleuze already picks up on this. He said, it's not a question of intellectual understanding or agreement, but of intensity, resonance, and musical harmony. Such intensities and harmonies are not locatable in either body of work, but rather take place incorporeally, in a sense, on this body without organs, which would lie between the two. So by connecting Deleuze and Foucault, we may be able to pursue the the inter-implicated questions of thinking and becoming, leaving the future, as Foucault says, wide open, and that would be always open to the to come. Thanks.